buy quickly, sell slowly. You're gonna to wanna to buy sooner, invest as soon as you can, right? And I think that a simple thought experiment does this. Imagine you had you know, $100,000 and you want to preserve its purchasing power over the next 100 years. And I give you two options. You can either invest $1,000 a year for the next 100 years, so like $1,000 every single year, or you can invest all $100,000 now. Now imagine I gave you this decision back in 1900. $100,000 back then was probably 10X. That was probably worth like a million today, maybe a little more than that. Let's just say in the year 1900, 1920, let's say, 100 years ago, basically. What would you do? Would you invest all 100,000 in 1922 or would you invest $1,000 a year for the next 100 years? And I think most people are gonna realize like, no, I would have invested it all then because if I would waited, I would have been eaten alive by inflation. Like inflation would have just destroyed the purchasing power of most of my money, right? And so if you can, if you wouldn't wait 100 years, you know, why would you wait, you know, 100 months or even 100 days, right? That same idea, I'm, I'm making it that long of a time period to show you how absurd it is, but that same absurdity can be kind of, you know, brought down to a shorter time period and it's still true, right? So I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Nick Majuli. Nick is the Chief Operating Officer and Data Scientist at Ritholtz Wealth Management, where he oversees operations across the firm and provides insight on business intelligence. He is also the author of of dollarsanddata.com, a blog focused on the intersection of data and personal finance. His work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, and the Los Angeles Times. Nick graduated from Stanford University with a degree in economics. The occasion for today's chat is not only to discuss what's going on with the economy today, but also to chat about his new book, Just Keep Buying, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Nick Majuli to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Nick Majuli, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Doug. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you because you're somebody that I've been following for a bit and I really appreciate how you take such complex issues such as money, investing and finance and really can break it down into simple ways for for the average person like me and many others to understand. And I know you've got a new book out that is it's, it's amazing. It's called Just Keep Buying and we're definitely going to get into some of the principles of that. But I think first, like the big issue that I think is has grabbed so much attention right now for people is like what's going on with the economy right now, in your opinion? Are we headed for a recession? Are we in a recession? And what does this mean for the average person? I mean, I don't know if we're actually in a recession already. There's some indicators that say we are, some say we aren't, right? It's so interesting to me. Uh, I saw a funny tweet recently from a stripper, and she said, um, the strip strip clubs are a leading indicator of recession. I'm telling you, we're already in a recession. She's like, when my biggest clients come in and ask for what are the specials, like, I know, right? So it's like a, a funny little joke went viral or whatever. But I think there's something to that you're going to see in different areas. For example, I know someone who works in loan processing for a long time and they recently lost their job because things are just slowing down. Like if you actually look at mortgage payments, right, or just because rates are higher and home prices are higher, it's much more difficult to buy a home. I mean, the price of just, you know, your monthly mortgage payment has gone up considerably for the average American home. So a lot of people are being priced out. And as a result, they just can't afford to, you know, take that risk to buy a home right now. So you're going to see some slowdowns in the economy as a result of that. So we're monitoring, kind of seeing what's going on now. I don't try to follow economic data too much. I just like to kind of keep up with what's going on. The other thing that's happened is e-commerce sales have come down in terms of like during COVID, obviously they shot through the roof because it's the only way to buy stuff really. But now they're back to basically where they were. They're on the 2019 trend. There's like a trend line of e-commerce sales and it's basically back to the trend line. So it's as if COVID almost never happened in terms of where we would expect e-commerce sales to happen. It was like a temporary, you know, surge and now we're back to old, the old trend. So things like that you see, and, you know, obviously I have no idea what's going to happen next, but it's, you know, it's very interesting. Obviously there's it's stuff going on in the energy market. There's high inflation, which is concerning for a lot of people. I mean, I know gas prices are now five, six bucks a gallon in certain areas, you know, and so 
it's starting to hit the pumps. And I actually just read, I mean, it's funny you see anecdotal stuff, but they slowly all kind of put together this picture of what's going on. Like someone just tweeted this morning, like I drove in from LAX last night and I'm leaving LAX. And he's like, it usually takes me two and a half hours to get home. I got home an hour and a half, no traffic. And he's like, I think because people just aren't driving as much. Maybe they're not, you know, people are like, oh, I'll go over there. Whatever. Maybe they're now thinking, do I really want to spend that money to go there? And so they're changing their decisions, right? And their, their consumption basket is changing because of prices. So it's interesting to see how that's going to play out. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so much going on and, and so many people are just like so uncertain, I think, of things when they see gas prices go up, they see they see costs of groceries going up, they see it's more expensive to go out and eat. They turn on CNBC and they see this crazy volatility in the stock market. I think what help people know like like what's going on is if they can better understand like why is this happening? Like you mentioned inflation, like what does that exactly mean for like the average listener? And then like why are things so expensive right now? I mean, there's a host of reasons. I mean, one of the biggest reasons is what's what people call supply shocks, right? Like normally we have certain amounts of, let's say, energy coming in from certain regions of the world. And now that energy can't make it across because of maybe there's a war or maybe there's something going on where we can't get parts and things like that. So supply chain issues are just one of these. I mean, everyone remembers when that that boat got stuck in the Suez Canal. That that's that started like a chain reaction of supply chain issues, right? Just imagine weeks. A lot of goods can't get through there, right? So. You just imagine how those things back up. You imagine what's going on in China right now. There's like their lockdowns in Shanghai. And so there's a lot of boats outside the ports that can't get goods to come back, right? So there's a lot of these things happening where like there's not enough goods going around. There's not enough baby formula in the United States. And once again, these are all supply chain issues. So that's not everything, but that's a part of the reason why this is happening. And obviously, if you don't have enough supply and you have higher demand, then prices have to go up. And so that's a very natural cause for inflation. Now, assuming supply comes back online in different markets, you will see those prices come down. The question is, will the supply come online? You know, what's going to happen? And we don't know. It's very complex. Like I'm not I'm not the expert here on the economy. I just have a basic understanding of it. But it just like that's basically what's happening. You think about like, oh, if, if 10 people want a good and there's only one of them, then the person that's willing to pay the most is generally going to get it all else equal. Otherwise, there's going to be shortages. Right. So I think that's what we're experiencing now. And until more stuff starts coming back into the country and then prices can start to come down. But we'll just have to kind of wait and see. Yeah, that all makes sense. And I know you wrote about in your book that you haven't always been the best when it comes to financial education. Like this is a lot of things that you've learned over the years. And you also write about like how to survive like down markets or survive times when things aren't as good. So right now, like what are some of the things that you're personally doing like to like weather this current storm that we're in? And then what are some things in your opinion that you've learned that people can do like during times like this to prepare to be prepared for like the next time something like this happens? To be honest, I haven't changed a single thing about what I'm doing with my finances. I'm still doing the same stuff, still buying stocks, buying, you know, whatever REITs, buying all the same stuff I'm buying, same proportions. I haven't changed anything, not changing my consumption. I'm still going out to restaurants, doing the same stuff. So there's not much I've done there on that front. That's really, you know, because I, I these things happen. And I think I, I even wrote a blog post today about this, just like. The more you've like studied history, the more you just see like things repeat themselves in different ways. They're not exactly the same, but you know, it's like history doesn't, you know, repeat, but it often rhymes. That's the saying, or, you know, they say Mark Twain said it, no one really knows who said it, right? But that's the truth. And so because history is rhyming, like there's, we've been through times similar to this. We've had high inflation before. We've had things like this. And, and it was, and most, most of the time it's caused by energy. The last time we had really high inflation in the early seventies, what was it? It was energy. There were energy issues that you had to go to the gas station on certain days based on your license plate number and all sorts of stuff, right? So We've seen things similar to this. It's not exactly the same, but look at what happened then. Like we got through it. It's going to be a tough time. There's going to be bad stuff's going to happen in the economy. People are going to lose jobs. You know, portfolios, assets are going to decline, things like that. I'm not saying that that's going to happen here. We could come out of this thing tomorrow for when things start to turn around. But in case it does happen, like you just kind of have to roll with the punches, right? And kind of just deal with it. Cause there's not, I mean, there's not much we can do on that front, right? You say, okay, well, what if I do something like I'm going to move to cash and I'm getting out the market's crazy. I'm going to get out. You could do that. Right. But then when do you get back in? That's the question. Cause you might still think like, when does the dust settle? By the time you think the dust is settled, it's probably way past settled. Like look what happened in March, 2020, right? Like we hit the bottom of March 23rd within six months, we're at a new all time high. If you had asked someone that that would have seen it. If I told you that, if I told you the future, then you would have said I was crazy. You said, there's no way that's how it's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. So I think trying to predict the future is difficult. And I think trying to make these big all or nothing decisions, like, oh, I'm going to move to cat, I'm going to sell all my stocks and get out. 
I think that's just a, a recipe for disaster because if, even if you get lucky here, you're going to follow that behavior in the future and you're going to get unlucky there. And so it's, it's not a question of if you're going to eventually lose out. It's a question of when. So if you do it once and you get lucky, never do that stuff again. But that's kind of just my take on it because I've, I've studied the data for so long. Like if you had panicked in 2015 or 2016 when we had those declines or December 2018, if anyone remembers, there was a big decline there. I mean, there are reasons to get out like all the time. So and yeah, I know I'm going to admit right now it doesn't look great, you know, with everything happening at the same time. Like, you know, I don't know what we can do about it. I don't think there's a great solution like, oh, here's exactly what you need to do. Follow these exact tactics. And anyone who tells you that doesn't know they're, they're trying to predict the future and they don't know and they might get lucky, but they, you know, a lot of them won't get lucky. So, right. I think one of the things that I learned from your book that I've really taken into account is just really mastering the fundamentals and just continuing to do the right things over and over again, and it will all pay off. One of the other things that I learned, which was kind of like this this big lie that's told in personal finance, is that typically when people will say, in order to invest more, you got to spend less, you got to you got to budget more, but you say like you actually have to earn more income, and it totally made a lot of sense. So if you could explain like why what the biggest myth in personal finance and then and then why it's so much more important to make more money yeah as you said the biggest lie in personal finance is that you can you know cutting spending is a reliable way to build wealth and it's it's not i mean you can do stuff like that in the short term it's the one thing you can kind of control the most easily but in the long run it's just not going to work because a lot of people you're going to guilt yourself you're going to have a you're going to have a much less enjoyable life trying to build wealth that way versus like Hey, is there some sort of like side hustle I have that I can kind of build on or can I maybe take my main hustle and find ways to get promoted and get new skills and kind of build on that so I can actually have enough income so I can live the life I want. Right. And I think over the long term, you can do that. And I can just give my example. Like I've been blogging for over five years now and the first three years I basically made no money on it. And then in year four, my audience got big enough where I could run ads and I started making some money. So now it's a nice little side hustle I have. Right. So it's one of those things where like I was willing to like not have income for years because I was like, Hey, this, this is something I like doing. And you know, maybe it'll become something. And it did thankfully Now it's not going to happen for everyone, but you got to, you know, kind of see how things go and then build it from there. So, right. And I think one of the other like quote unquote myths that is talked about in the finance community that you kind of debunk is like having a set amount of money that somebody should invest every single month. And instead you say like, just, just save what you can. Like, why is that so much more important? I just think like a lot of the savings advice we have, like, oh, save 20% of your income always, no matter what. It's like the problem is income's too variable. Like there's, especially if you have a side hustle or something where like your income's not like, let's say you're an Uber driver or something like that. Or let's say you're whatever it is, you have a side thing you're doing where you, have to, you get freelance work. Like you have a bunch of projects and then have nothing. So it's really tough to say, oh, always save 20%. Like, no, there are times when you're going to be flush with cash and you should be saving more than 20. There's times when you're not going to, things are going to have to get tight. Maybe right now is a tight time for you and your family possibly. And you're like, you know what? I need to cut back a little and that's fine. It's okay. I don't want you guilting yourself. I don't think the stress is worth that, right? So it's okay if you can't save as much in certain times, but I do want people generally over the course of their lives to be trying to find ways to build income so they can save more, right? That's the most important thing. And kind of getting back to the, the prior question a little bit, why is cutting spending the biggest lie because if you actually look at the data, the most positively correlated thing with savings rates is income. So the higher your income, the higher your savings rate. That's been shown in the data across the board. And of course, you may know some individual who you know, has a high income, but they also, you know, spend all of it, right? You might hand, know a handful of those people, but generally the data shows that those people are rare. Those people are the exceptions. Most people with higher income save more, right? It's like, I always love the the argument about like, oh, you know, what about these celebrities? All these celebrities had income, right? And they just, it's because their spending was so high. That's why they went broke. I'm like, you have what, five, 10 celebrities you can name, right? That are like broke. And like, that's your sample size is like 10, right? You have 10 observations. I have every other celebrity. I have, I have the number of celebrities minus 10. Like every other celebrity is like generally rich or I mean rich enough, right? You know, I'm not saying they're billionaires, but like they're generally rich because they aren't spending like that. What you're really doing is just identifying high spenders. You're not identifying any sort of pattern in the data about their income, right? If you look at the data, the data shows higher income people save more. And the reason is simple. Your income rises more quickly than your spending, right? If I were to give you, if I were to 10X your income tomorrow, are you going to eat 10 times more? Are you going to spend 10 times more on food? No, you'll probably spend a little bit more on food. Yeah, but you're not going to 10X your spending in all your spending categories. So as a result, what's the difference? How does that happen? Then the difference there is more income to save, right? It's like, you know, if your income goes up 10x and your spending only goes up 3x, then that difference is is savings, right? So it's, it's pretty simple to me. And I think most people understand that intuitively. And then once you see in the day, you're like, oh yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Like we shouldn't be telling people not to have their lattes. Lattes aren't moving the, the needle enough, you know?
Right. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, I've definitely noticed that my own personal finance journey in that there's some seasons in my life where I'm banking like 40% of my income. And there's some seasons where I'm like banking zero and I'm like beat myself up, up for it along the way. Cause I'm just generally hard on myself for, for that sort of thing. But I got asked this question because I was asking my audience, like, what are some questions you would want to know from somebody who is pretty versed in the data of, of finance and investing? And they, they were asking me like, is there a minimum amount that somebody of income that somebody should be able to make before they start investing? Like for, is it worth like somebody investing like 50 bucks a month into like an index fund or something to get started? If you suffer from digestive issues like gas, bloating, cramping, even when you're eating healthy, nutritious foods, then you could probably benefit from a high quality enzyme. If you've never tried enzymes, or even if you've tried and they haven't worked, I want you to give this one a chance. As you know, I'm a big fan of the company Bioptimizers. They are one of the few supplement companies who have the best formulations and use the highest quality ingredients and their products work. I asked them if we could organize a great deal for all of my listeners and they over-delivered. Right now, you can get a bottle of Mazimes for free. All you need to do is pay a small shipping fee and there's no catch. There's no tricks, no forced continuity, and nothing to cancel. They are so confident in their products that they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee, so I'm positive you'll be satisfied with the results. Mazimes is a 17-enzyme full-spectrum formula, plus it contains all the key enzymes needed for optimal digestion. So many individuals suffer from digestive issues because any protein your body doesn't break down can lead to digestive distress, gas, bloating, and constipation. Mazimes can help ensure that all the protein that you consume breaks down into absorbable amino acids. So I strongly suggest that you head on over to their site to grab your bottle before they either run out or take down this offer. Go to mazimes.com slash Doug free. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com forward slash Doug free, which is all one word. And you will automatically get access to your unique coupon code to claim your free bottle. Limit one per household. Offer is valid while supplies last. You're going to love their products. So go now. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, I don't think there's a problem with getting started. I just wouldn't spend a lot of time like trying to optimize that $50 a month investment. Like just put it into something, move on and focus more on your income, right? That's if you're just getting started, like there's nothing wrong with just starting at 50 bucks a month. I think the the real thing though is not to spend like, you know, hours and hours like analyzing and trying to figure out what's the right solution. Like at 50 bucks a month, even within a year, you know, you're talking $600 and it's not a ton of money, you know, just to get started. I mean, it's, it's a good start just to start out, but it's not, it's not going to make a difference if you're hundred percent stocks or 60, 40. I mean, it, the differences there are small, but once you've been doing that for a few years, you do that for 10 years and you have six grand, it's a little bit more impactful, but ideally over that 10 years, you will be raising your income so that you're, you're getting more than 50. Then you're getting 500 a month. Now you're really like starting to kick up some money in there. Then you're like, wow, I'm really saving money. So that's the idea is for people to focus on income, right? Because I think income is the is the foundation, the main pillar that helps people build wealth. And most people don't want to talk about that. Of course, there's like exceptions to this rule, but for the most part, it's income. And so I want people to focus on the area that's actually the most helpful and like, what can you do to kind of build more income? Right. You're absolutely right. And I think when people hit that like point in their life where they need to like scrap and make some more money, they're often like just stuck and caught up in their own ways sometimes on how to do that. I know you talk about some creative ways in the book on how people can put together some ideas to make more money. So what are a couple that stuck out to you as you were writing that book that you think would really resonate with people and as far as creating more opportunities to generate more income? Yeah, so there's two main ones. The first is like, okay, are you talking about your main hustle, which is like, what can I do at my job to like, you know, move up the ladder, so to speak, if that's what you want to do, that's one option, right? Whether that's skills, whether that's figuring out other roles in the company that you might have skills for. The second, which is probably the more frequently used is your side hustles and what are different options you have, right? You can, you know, sell your time or expertise in something like, let's say you're good at something and you're good at you know, a foreign language. You're like, oh, that's, that's useless. Well, no, some people, they might want to learn a foreign language. And if you happen to know English and another language, or especially a, a rare language, you can kind of sell your expertise there, right? Or you can sell your time. Let's say you were good at a certain subject. You start tutoring high school kids or something. That's an that's an option. You can teach stuff. If there's if there's like you have a really like good niche out there in something, like you can kind of teach stuff on the internet, like stuff like that. I know there's a guy who 
he just like has a bonsai garden. I, I heard he live streams this and he just started doing this and it's very peaceful and he's like one of the best in the world. And so don't think your niche is too small. If you're like a real big expert in something, like you might be able to make some money on it. And so there's a guy who makes a living off of showing how to tend to a bonsai garden, right? Which is like one of these weird things, but like, or bonsai trees, right? These types of specific types of trees. And so like, I've heard of all sorts of things where people have found ways to make money. So I think your niche is bigger than you think because the internet has allowed for people that are very different to kind of come together, right? So you have all these people, all the people with bonsai trees can find each other because of the internet. So this wouldn't have been true, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, but because of the internet, you know, everyone who has an interest in a particular thing, you can probably find a way to productize that and sell it in some way. So think about those are the different options. So I would just say kind of think about getting on the internet and maybe contributing away, start searching whether that's going to be on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, whatever. Look on social media, look on different areas, forums to find ways to find your interests and see if there's a way where you can kind of productize things. Right, right. Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, as far as like when somebody wants to get started actually investing, let's just say they have generated enough income where now they have some extra cash and they're like, I want to invest. Um, I know some some financial experts will say have these few things in place, like no credit card debt, you know, six months cash reserves, like whatever. Like, what is your opinion on should somebody have like zero debt before investing, or do you think debt some debt can be okay? Like, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's really dependent on the interest rate on your debt, right? If you're paying like eight, nine percent for your debt, let's say you had a student loan that was that high. I don't even know. I don't think they go that high, but let's say they were that high. You probably want to pay those off first before you start investing. Where's that limit? I don't know exactly, right? I would, me personally, I'd probably pay off anything that was over 5% interest, just guarantee 5%. I'd rather have that than the variable. But anything, you know, if it's below 5%, if like mortgage debt even, I would say don't, you don't want to pay off your mortgage first. I'd say like you you should get invested and just kind of keep your mortgage there and just pay it because inflation is going to eat at, away at the payment over time anyway. So I'd say mortgage debt, I would be investing even if you had mortgage debt. Student loan debt, you might want to think about it depending on the, you know, 7 8% plus, I would say probably pay off the, the loans first. Otherwise, you can invest. But yeah, so that that's kind of my guideline. I don't. It's 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 more of an art than science. It's kind of what you feel comfortable with. If, you, if the debt is giving you guilt or stress or something, you probably want to pay that off first. Then they find in the data that most people um, aren't stressed out about mortgage debt, but non-mortgage debt they generally are. So like credit card debt, things like that are a little bit more like crippling psychologically. So you'll want to probably pay those off if you can first, and then start investing before you. But um, mortgage debt, you don't have to worry about that as much. Most people are like, okay, yeah, I can have mortgage debt and not not lose any sleep over that. Right. And I think it's kind of stigmatized, right? Because we all need a place to live. So when you have mortgage debt, you assume that it's okay because you have to have a place to live. Whereas credit card debt, typically you accumulate it. Most of the time you're spending it on things you can't really afford or you don't really need, right? In many cases. So I think you're right. Like I read about that in the book and I was like, man, I never thought about it that way, but I can definitely tell like when I have credit card debt, like I feel like crap about it. I'm like, I need to pay it off as soon as possible. So let's say somebody like wants to then actually invest, you know, back in the day, it was like, you would just put your money into some sort of like mutual fund and just let it kind of ride out or you diversify amongst whatever your 401k plan offered or whatever it was. But now there's been this rise in passive investing and ETF. So like for the average investor, if they want to just get started and throw some money into the market, like, do you recommend throwing it into a mutual fund? Do you recommend ETFs? Like what's the data say is going to give you the best bang for your buck? I think there, what you care about most is cost generally. I mean, so you want to do low cost index funds, ETFs, whether or even mutual funds, as long as it's cheaper. I mean, the tax efficiency is a little better on the ETFs and the mutual funds. So that's something to keep in mind. So that's why I generally steer people towards ETFs. But generally, and you want to be diversified, you want to have broad market exposure, whether that's, you know, US and international markets, I recommend both. Obviously, you don't have to if you want to do only US, you can, but there are downsides to that. There are decades where even though the US has absolutely you know be in you know international markets over the this last decade if you look at the decade before that from you know instead of looking at 2010 to 2019 or the us one if you went from 2000 to 2009 the us got beaten pretty badly by things like emerging markets right so that's why i think diversification is important because if you have all your money you know invested in your home country and the home country isn't doing well you can lose a lot of money i think we saw that earlier this year with russia's stock market going down 80 percent in a month so imagine having all your money in russian stocks right it'd be kind of a scary thing so just i'd say stay diversified that's probably more important than the exact funds you get with doing etf mutual fund of course you want to keep your costs lower generally but i think what's more important is like figuring out you know some mix that works for you and there's no right answer i can't be like oh you have to do you know some people say market cap weight 
right? So if, if the U.S. is 50% and then the rest of the world's the other 50% of, of equity markets, right, done based on total valuation, you'd own 50-50, right, Something of your equity sleeve, right? So your stock sleeve. But I, everyone, you know, it's up for interpretation. You can do whatever you want, really, you know? Yeah, I think there's been this rising trend of people just like throwing their money into like the S&P 500 index or the, the NASDAQ or whatever and just letting it ride. And it's it's beat like active managers in the in mutual funds over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Like, do you see that trend continuing to happen or do you think it's important for people to start to hedge like what they're buying and including things like bonds, alternative assets, REITs and stuff like that, too? I think there's kind of two separate questions there. The first question is like, do you think like passive vehicles will beat the active? And I think in a lot of areas that's true. It's not true everywhere. Like if you look at some emerging markets, there are some there's some evidence that like active managers can beat, you know, passive benchmarks. But the question is, is that true after fees? What's the fee they're charging? Usually they know they're good, so they can charge more. You know, it's like the best managers know when they know they're good and they have value, they extract some of their because it makes sense, you know? Like, why do you think Jim Simon's the, the best hedge fund in the world, you know, Renaissance Technologies and the uh, Medallion Fund? He was charging like, I think, 5% and something with the, you know, he's starting some outrageous amount. And eventually at some point they earned so much money, they kicked everyone else out of the fund. So now it's only employee money at this point. Like they don't even allow people to invest in this, even though, and they were charging this high fee and people still couldn't, you know, couldn't wait to, there were, you know, a line to knock down the door to get their money in there. So, you know, when people know they're good, they usually charge a lot. So I think that's one thing to do. I think if you're in U.S. markets, I would just do passive. I would not be trying to pick active managers at all. I mean, I just generally do passive everywhere because, you know, if that trend changes that's one thing but whether like oh is the u.s going to keep outperforming i have no clue and it's not going to go on forever maybe it goes on for another 10 years but then the 10 years after that they underperform i don't know and i'm not here to like try and figure out why the u.s is outperforming we could we could debate that but i think the main thing to keep in mind is just like be diversified and don't your whole financial future shouldn't be like oh my gosh it has to be on this exact allocation otherwise i'm not going to make it you know usually you're going to either be fine or you're not right it's like it's very rare that someone's like i just need that exact dollar money if i didn't get that exact return you know so i think most people are going to be fine i think it's more just like find something that works for you and then kind of just stick to it and don't try and make crazy allocation changes all the time because that's that's where you can get yourself into trouble because you'll start trend chasing or something and you might end up getting burned Yeah. Speaking of trend chasing, there's been some trends, I guess, in the last few years on buying these individual stocks like GameStop and and others that have trended upwards, but have also come down crazy downwards and people lost a lot of money. And you write about in your book what that you, you write about in your book that it's, it's just not worth to buy individual stocks for most people because over the long term, like the odds of you beating the S&P 500 are like very, very rare. And so if you could talk about like maybe what the data says and why it's not the best practice to just be a stock picker if you're a retail investor and you're just trying to to make some money over the long term, I think people would appreciate that. Yeah. So first caveat, if you're doing this for fun, you have like, you know, 5% of your wealth, your investable wealth or less in individual stocks. I don't care. You know, do your thing, you know, have fun with it. It's not going to, I mean, it's not going to materially affect your wealth that much, but if you'd like to do it, that's fine. But if you're someone who has, you know, a bulk of your wealth in individual stocks, I think that's where you can kind of get into trouble. And especially now we're seeing that, especially in the last six months before like November, 2021, you know, this argument fell, people didn't like it. They thought it was stupid, but now people are starting to see like, oh my gosh, there's all these names that are down, you know, 60, 70, 80%. And it's like, how is that possible? Like how is Peloton down so much? How is Zoom down so much? All these companies are now below their pre-pandemic prices, which is kind of wild to think. Like we had this huge surge in demand and I guess it was short-term surge, but still like these companies are now struggling because of this. So it's a very interesting, you know, idea. It's interesting to see that happen. Um, In terms of the data, on stock picking. Um, if you want to look up something, I look up the SPIVA reports, S-P-I-V-A, SPIVA. You can go and look at any equity market across the world and say, like, give me the three-year, five-year performance, what percentage of active managers or stock pickers basically beat their benchmarks. And these are people with resources, with funds. It's not like you and me at home. These are people that have, like, research teams. They have a lot of people doing this, like, working as their full-time job trying to beat the market, right? And on most of these people, it's, you know, going to be something like 70% across most three- to five-year periods are not beating the market, right? And as you go longer and longer periods, the that percentage gets smaller because it's very tough to keep beating the market over a long period of time. So that's just the performance argument. We could talk about that more, but it's been kind of beaten over the head, I think, at this point. And so a lot of people have heard this argument, like, oh, you can't pick individual stocks because you'll underperform. You know, people get that. I think the real reason that's more important than that is like 
what I call the existential argument. Like, how do you know if you're good at stock picking, right? It's one of these things where like, there's so much luck involved and there's so much time in like a feedback loop. Like imagine if I go to shoot a basketball, right? Like I'm gonna know if I'm like decent, like within a couple of shots, especially within like 100, 200, 500 shots, you're gonna know whether I have any like skill there, right? Versus me versus Steph Curry, right? If we were both up there shooting or something, you would see who has talent, who doesn't very quickly. The feedback loop is small. It's literally the, the time between when the, the ball leaves my hand and whether it goes into the basket. A couple seconds, every single time we do that 500 times, we have a good sample set, right? Just from that. But what about stock picking, right? Like, you know, Doug, you and I can go and pick a set of stocks. We come back a year from now, if your portfolio is higher than mine, does that mean you're a better stock picker? After one year, like we just made individual stock picks. Like, how do you know? You don't, you could have just gotten lucky, right? You could have one stock in there that just dominated the portfolio because you got lucky, right? And it's the same thing. What if we look at two years, five years, you know, at what point will we know for better who's the better stock picker? I think it's really tough to know. And because there's so much luck involved and so much noise in there that the getting the signal of who's actually talented is very difficult unless you have a lot of like trades they've done and they've done it for a long time. And even then I'm saying you probably need 10 years before you have any sort of statistical power to see if someone is actually talented. So can you imagine doing that? I mean, you only have I see you have 40 working years, right? Can you imagine spending 10 years of your life working on something and have no idea if you're good until after the 10th year? It's like, that's just mind boggling to me. Like, that's why I don't even play that game. Cause I'm like, I know I'm just like gonna just beat myself up mentally. Cause I don't know if I'm good. And what if you are good and then you like lose your skill or you're good in one market regime, but not good in the next, right? I could keep going down this. Like there's no, I have not, I've yet to hear an argument that says like that why people should be doing this. Obviously there's some people who do have skill and they're identified after the fact. And those people, obviously, I, I do think we should have stock pickers. I'm not against stock pickers as like a class. I'm just saying I think it's really tough for people to do, and I think most people should not be doing it. Just like I don't think most people should try to, you know, go play in the NBA because, you know, it's just it's really it's a very very tough game. There's a lot of competition, and unless you're you know six eight or something, then maybe you have a better chance than someone who's you know average height or something like that. But you get my point for sure. And it, there used to be an adage that was like just buy what you know, and I do that a little bit like off and on where it was like all right if I wore athletic shoes you buy nike like if you use social media you buy facebook and but what i've learned is that when i've done this i become like not obsessive but i'm always like doing research on other things and it's just taking up so much of my time and then i realize like man i could just be dumping this money into my retirement accounts or into like etfs or something that's easier and i don't even have to worry about it. i can just let it ride and just focus on my training business focus on the podcast like focus on other things and not letting you know, not, not spending like an, like a half an hour in the morning, like reading, like up on the stock market and letting like just whatever people are, are helping me out with my money, like do that. And then me just take care of what's important to me. When it comes to retirement, I think people get so intimidated by the word retirement because they think that that number is, is so far away from them. But I think what you kind of pointed out in your book is it's really not that far for a lot of people. So maybe like if you could just explain for the typical person, like how much money does somebody like need to retire, assuming that they're not going to be, you know, living this extravagant lifestyle after they stop working. I mean, that's really dependent on your spending, right? So like what is extravagant, right? If we, let's say we used a, I, the rule I like to use, and I think the, the the reason people use is because it takes a very complex problem of retirement and simplifies it very easily. And that's the 4% rule. And so another way of looking at is what's your annual spending multiply by 25. And that's roughly what you might need, right? So if you're spending 10 grand a year, you need 200. Let's say you're spending 10 grand above Social Security. That's another thing too. Where people, a lot of people think Social Security is gonna run out. It's not gonna run out. It's probably going to be reduced, or they're gonna kick the age older or something. But let's just say, let's say you're spending above Social Security. Let's say Social Security takes care of most of your spending, but you spend an extra 10 grand a year, right? So what do you need? 25 times 10 grand. You need 250 thousand dollars, right? That's what you would need in a retirement account, right? To make it through like let's say a 30 year period, roughly. Let's say, okay, well, no, I need to spend 50 grand more. Okay, you know then you 5x that, right? So it's $1.25 million, right? So there's different ways of doing this, obviously, and you're supposed to kind of use real returns and all sorts of stuff like to get to that. But I don't think the number is what matters. I think for most people, we focus too much on money in retirement. I think that's really kind of like, maybe the if I had to guess the third or fourth issue for some people, like, yes, if you're 60 right now, and you haven't started saving for retirement, like, there's nothing that I can do or that even there's probably not much you can do to kind of get there within five years, right? Unless you hit the lotto or have some, you know, you're about to sell your business. And like, unless you know, you're gonna have some sort of large liquidity event, you're at zero and you have no cash to like put us like, 
there's just no, the, there, you don't have enough time there. The time lever, which is the, the thing that I pull on and a lot of young people are gonna be able to pull on, is not really in your favor. Even if you say, okay, I'm gonna wait till 70, you have 10 years, that's not nothing, but it's not a ton of time. You really need 20, 30 before you can really start to see that growth kind of take off in a big way. So for those people, I would say, you know, what you have to do is just kind of focus on what you can do and just maybe you're gonna have to change your lifestyle a little bit when you're in retirement, you know, that's another, maybe you have to work longer. There's just, I mean, there's, there's I, I don't wanna sugarcoat it, right, for some people, but I think the more important thing for most most people outside of those people who really don't have any money saved is, you know, what are you going to do in retirement? Like, what's your day to day like? I think it's the existential piece. And I like talking about the existential piece because people ignore it and they're like, OK, once I have enough money, then I'll be good. It's like, have you considered that like once you leave work and you're not in there and let's say you're in the office every day and you're used to seeing people or even if you're doing it remotely, that part of your life's gone. What are you going to do day to day? Are you just going to sit in front of the TV? Are you going to travel? Like what friends are you going to hang out with? You know, are you retired and all your friends aren't and you're just sitting around doing like you got to figure out like what you're going to do with your time because I think that's what's going to give you more purpose and, and enjoyment in retirement than the money. So I, I would say money is important. Don't get me wrong, but I say that's probably a a third or fourth level concern in the grand scheme of things of retirement. So I'd have people focus on that. That's what I kind of talked about in the book as well. Yeah, I read that and I was like, man, this makes so much sense because I've known people through the years that have been very, very, very successful financially, either sold a business, owned a business, or just worked in a field where they just made silly money. Now, obviously, I'm sure you know these people too. And they're, and they're working like into their late 70s, early 80s still because they still like want to have some sort of purpose in life, even though like financially, they wouldn't even need to work a day in their life. Their kids would never need to work a day in their life and so on and so forth. But they need that that sense of meaning outside of just having this this massively large bank account. You talked about time. And I think that's something that people, I mean, the average person, I think, undervalues, especially when they're younger and they're starting to invest money. Like, like why is it so much more important if somebody is able to, to start investing for their retirement like sooner rather than later? The compounding is just huge. I mean, I'll give you a simple example. This one example will show it. So let's say you could earn 7% a year. That's just the number I'm using. We can change those variations, but this just makes the math work out in this way, but we can we can make it smaller, it doesn't matter. But let's just say 7% a year. If you save the same, the same amount of money every year for 40 years, right? The same amount, let's say you save 10 grand a year. Every year for 40 years, you get 7% a year. Of the final portfolio value you have after the 40 years, half of that came from your first 10 years of contributions. So the half of that final value came from the first 10 years. The other half came from the last 30 years. So what does that mean? Like in, in other words, like half of the effort comes in the first 10 years and that is equal to the last 30 years of savings. That's how important saving early is because that first you're saying, but Nick, in the first 10 years, I only save, you know, $100,000, 10,000 times 10, right? But in the last... 30 years, I saved 300,000, right? But that first, you know, 100,000 is it gonna end up compounding, you know, for 30 years while that last 300,000 doesn't get to compound for as long. You know, in the last thing about in the last year, you only that well, that last $10,000 payment only gets to compound for one year, right? And then two years before that, that $10,000 payment only gets to compound for two years, right? But you've had some payments compounding for, you know, 38 years, 39, you know what I'm saying? So that's the point. So if you actually look at the data, like half of it comes in the first, you know, quarter, right? The first quarter of the contributions, the first 10 years, half of the half of your final value is already there. So really, that's the importance of saving early because, you know, it's just like you do the hard work up front and then you can kind of coast. And also it's a behavioral argument too. Like it's much easier to let your money compound in the stock market than it is to save money. Like saving money is not easy, right? Like you have to, you have to like actively either work hard to grow your income or you have to actively not spend money and cut spending, which is difficult like on a behavioral perspective versus like, what do I have to do to earn money in the stock market when it goes up? Nothing, I just sit there and let it grow, right? I mean, I have to obviously not, I'm not saying it's so simple because you're gonna panic. People will panic at times and sell out and all that. But like, if you can just like let it do its thing, like. It has done over history, over different markets will generally build wealth, right? I'm not saying that the market's never going to decline. We're not going to have a bad decade. We're not going to have all sorts of bad things happen. Those things will happen. But generally, on average, if you own enough income producing assets across the world, they're very diversified. You should build wealth, period. I just, and it's going to be an inflation, right? And that's the record of history. It's very clear in the data. I think this will continue. The question is at what rate? I don't know. But that's the main thing to take away there is like start early. For sure. Yeah, definitely start early. I mean, gosh, I've seen example after example, and I've seen you talk about this, like the importance of like compounding interest and how like just, you know, when you start like 10 years earlier than the person who's investing more money per month than you, you still will end up having more money than that person because of the value of compounding interest. One of the things that 
that people often have questions about is if they're working for, for a company and they're like, well, where do I put my money? Do I put my money in a Roth IRA? Do I put my money in a traditional IRA? Do I put my money in a 401k? I know you talk a lot about this in, in the book and you've talked about it extensively in other interviews you've done, but like, how does somebody know whether or not they should choose the Roth IRA versus a traditional 401k and vice versa? So if we're talking, I generally recommend IRAs over 401ks. Obviously, a lot of people have 401ks because it's the only thing they can do with their employer. And if they're, especially if they're getting a match, it makes sense to, to get the match. But traditional versus Roth, whether that's 401k or IRA, I think the main thing to think about is like, it's really tough to know because you have, you have to kind of guess your future. You have to guess, okay, what taxes am I going to be paying in the future? Like, are federal tax rates going to go up? That's a question you have to ask yourself. And like, the answer is you don't know, right? You may have something, you may know whether you're going to live in a lower tax state. Like, let's say you live in New York or California now, you're paying probably a higher income tax rate than if you were in Florida, right? So if you're like, hey, I'm going to move to Texas or Florida in retirement, if you know that, you're probably better off doing a pre-tax traditional right now, avoid the higher taxes now, and then later pay the taxes when you're in a lower tax state. That's like an example of doing sort of tax arbitrage across state lines that could help. But the people have said, well, okay, what happens if the federal tax rates shoot up a ton, right? If they shoot up a ton into the future, there's a chance that paying, you know, doing pre-tax now, doing traditional now, and then later in the future paying the taxes, you could be paying at a higher rate, right? And so I don't know the optimal thing. If this is that's why writing about taxes is so difficult because every person's individual situation is different. I generally recommend, you know, traditional because you have a little bit more flexibility on when you pay your taxes versus having to pay them right now. The other option is to do both maybe, you know, like when I was younger, I did all Roth. And as I started to, as my earnings started to increase, I've done mostly traditional now, right? So I've kind of jumped around a little bit. I think having both also gives you a little bit of flexibility. There's those things to think about. But yeah, there's all sorts of tax games you can play, honestly. And it, it's a very complex topic. I would also talk to a tax advisor about this as well to figure out what's the best thing. I generally do recommend IRAs over 401ks though, because you have more control of your investments. You can literally say, hey, I want to put it in this fund or that fund versus your 401k, you're forced into whatever they have, right? And if the fees are high enough, it won't even make sense to do that because you'll be losing money there, right? Above a certain point. So it's figuring that type of stuff out. Right. Yeah. And then there's also like the importance of like business investment. If you're an entrepreneur, like that's like one thing that's been different for me and other people that I know is that, you know, if when you're working for a corporation or nine to five, like you work for that corporation and you're investing in your future and in your retirement for like when you stop working at that company, but as an entrepreneur, like you got to invest in yourself. Like how different is it when somebody's like working for themselves or they allocate a certain percentage of their income to invest in their business, invest in their personal development so that they can grow their income to then be able to save more money for retirement? Well, that's a much more nuanced conversation, right? Like figuring out how much to reinvest in your business. That's a great question. And I don't have a great answer for it, to be honest with you. But like if your business is growing a lot and you're like, if I just had another set of hands to help me out here, we could be making this much more money, right? Or we could be doing this. If you can kind of see that, then yes, hiring to re reinvest in your business makes sense. Obviously, if that doesn't seem obvious to you, then I don't think you should be doing stuff like that. I think it's figuring out, you know, what's the right decision. And that's where uh, you as a business owner kind of have to make make that call, right? Versus like, all right, this is this is true of every business owner. This is not even something like we, we're talking about, you know, you and I as individuals and people running small businesses, things like that. But that's even true of like, if you're running a large corporation that has a ton of extra earnings, like they have to make the choice. Do I pay my dividend to my shareholders, which is like, do I pay the money out? Or do I reinvest in our business? And because I think we can earn a higher return than what my shareholders can earn, right? Which is like, let's just say the S&P 500, that's like their benchmark, right? Like if we think the S&P 500 is going to grow faster than our company, we should just be paying dividends out and just give that all to the shareholders, let them reinvest as they see fit versus like, oh, I'm reinvesting it for them, right? It's the same question. Like that corporate strategy, corporate finance question is the same question you're doing as an individual. Like, should I take this extra money I have and just put in the S&P 500? That's like your opportunity cost. That's the thing that your next best option, right, is doing that or do I reinvest in my business? I think a lot of times, you know, smaller businesses, if you're growing quickly, it's probably better to reinvest in your business, but it really depends. I don't want to say that as a general rule because some businesses, that's not true. What if the market dries up for your business? You just hired someone on and now there's no money coming in, right? Now you're in a really bad spot versus like if you put that money in the S&P 500 and it just goes down a little bit, like you lost a little bit of money, but it's not like you're on the hook for someone else's life and livelihood and all that. So these are big decisions. I would just say, take some time, think it through. Yeah. And definitely talk to your, to your CPA about it. Cause the one thing that I've learned is like, direct business expenses or investing in my business, you can write that off against self-employment tax. Whereas investing in like my SEP IRA, like I, it doesn't come against my business income. It comes against like my total 
like federal taxable income. So definitely make sure you got to talk to like a, an accountant to make sure like, you know, which vehicles are best for you. One of the things that, that I've really been fascinated about is how you talk about the difference in returns between like lump sum investing, dollar cost averaging, waiting to buy the dip. And I think just for the average person that's listening to this, they might be saying, okay, like, do I just wait until I have you know, five or $6,000 to contribute to a Roth, then dump it in? Do I, do I just put 500 bucks in a month? Like what does the data say is the best strategy for the person who's just trying to like save on a yearly basis for their retirement? I mean, yeah, the long story short of it is if I, there's a rule at the end of the book, I give all these rules are trying to summarize this, summarize the chapters. People like those are really easy. And the rule is buy quickly, sell slowly. And that rule kind of comprises, you know, what's, like the way to think about this generally on average, you know, there's not always true. There are going to be exceptions to this. It's better to like get invested sooner. So whatever that is, I don't, it doesn't matter. We can use different words for all this. I don't want to use terms because the terms mean different things. Like when you say dollar cost averaging, when I hear that term, I think of just like someone buying over time, like buying as every, as they get paid, they're buying. Like every time you, you buy in your 401k, let's say I would call that dollar cost averaging. But other people have taken that term and then said, okay, well, let's say you sold a business and you have $100,000, right? You can either put it all in now, that's called lump sum, or you could slowly put it into the market. People have also called that dollar cost averaging. I think about the prior, yeah. Yeah, there's two different definitions and they mean opposite things, which is very confusing to like say dollar cost averaging when they mean very different things, right? So. The dollar cost averaging I care about is the one where you're investing as soon as you can. You can think of them as miniature lump sums, whatever you want to think about it. And so I just say like, just let's get rid of all the terms here and let's just make it very simple. Like buy quickly, sell slowly. You're going to want to buy sooner, invest as soon as you can, right? And I think that a simple thought experiment does this. Imagine you had, you know, $100,000 and you want to preserve its purchasing power over the next 100 years. And I give you two options. You can either invest $1,000 a year for the next 100 years. So like $1,000 every single year, or you can invest all $100,000 now. Now imagine I gave you this decision back in 1900. $100,000 back then was probably 10X. That was probably worth like a million today, maybe a little more than that. Let's just say in the year 1900, 1920, let's say, 100 years ago, basically. What would you do? Would you invest all 100,000 in 1922, or would you invest $1,000 a year for the next 100 years? And I think most people are gonna realize like, no, I would have invested it all then, because if I would waited, I would've been eaten alive by inflation. Like inflation would've just destroyed the purchasing power of most of my money, right? And so if you can, if you wouldn't wait 100 years, you know, why would you wait, you know, 100 months or even 100 days, right? That same idea, I'm, I'm making it that long of a time period to show you how absurd it is, but that same absurdity can be kind of, you know, brought down to a shorter time period and it's still true, right? So that's what the data shows. You're going to beat the market. I'm sorry, you're not going to beat the market. You're going to beat, you know, someone who goes slowly and, and slowly averages in about 80% of the time. So you're going to win about 80% of the time when you buy now versus average in. So when you buy more quickly, more importantly than that, just think about behaviorally what you have to do. The only time when buying slowly beats someone who buys immediately is when the market's falling. So the only time when like it's better to buy slowly is when the market's going down. And that's the time when you're least enthusiastic to buy because you're now freaked out like, oh, is it going to go down more and more? And you start freaking out about it, right? So that's the thing to keep in mind is like, People think, you know, oh, if I'll keep buying no matter what. It's like as soon as the market starts to decline, you might feel differently. So just make sure you know yourself before you kind of go on to that old average in method. That's that's great advice. And, and yeah, I thought of the dollar cost averaging, like as you as like the first example, like you said, like as soon as you're getting paid, like a percentage of your money is getting allocated into your 401k or an IRA or whatever you're choosing to invest in. I don't want to end our conversation without asking about crypto. I honestly don't know much about it. I, I haven't really looked into it. And that's why I've really never bought into Bitcoin. You'll hear some people in the finance business say, crypto is complete BS and it's just a hoax. And then you'll hear other people being like, it's here to stay. I know you've you've talked somewhat favorably about crypto and that you own a little bit yourself. So if you could just give your opinion on what your thoughts are in crypto, like what it actually is and if, where you see it going. So I see it as a kind of a digital gold, a risk asset. I do not see it as a currency, though in some ways it can be used as a currency, but I really would look at it as a digital form of gold. So it's a risk asset that just happens to be, you know, on this thing called the blockchain. I don't want to get into all explaining that there's much better explainers out there, but basically you can think of it as like a 
cryptocurrency, what it really is, is like you have a private wallet. Imagine it's like a private bank and you have the key and the key is like something called a seed phrase. It's just 24 or 12 random words. They're just random. They're in a certain order. And that if you put those in a certain order, that basically unlocks, creates a key that unlocks your bank account, basically. So someone gets those words, they can open your bank account, but no one else can touch it. So like there's nothing no one else can do. There's no way to hack in without those, you know, 24 or 12 words, right? So whatever those set of words. So that's what it is like as a technology, but like as an asset, it's like, it's not income producing. So I generally don't recommend it as income producing. And there's people who've talked about something called staking, which is like you lend your crypto out. And I do not recommend that either because we've seen just recently, there's been some things people are staking. Oh, I'm getting 20% a year on this coin. Great. And this coin just collapsed in price, right? So it's one of those things where people thought they were earning 20% a year and then they just lost like, you know, 80% or 90% on their investment. So I don't recommend that. But what it, I, I generally recommend people get off of zero. I'm not saying you put a large percentage or portfolio, a very small percentage. You obviously don't have to, if you don't feel comfortable, don't do it. But I have, you know, two, 3% of my portfolio in there. And the reason I do that is because like, I think it is a risk asset. I think it is here to stay. Does that mean I think the price is going to go for Bitcoin, let's say to a hundred thousand or a million? Not necessarily. I have no idea what the price is going to do, but I think having a small allocation to Bitcoin is something that it could be prudent and you could do. And I try to diversify across other coins as well. Like my firm actually has, I'm not here to promote my firm's products or anything, but we actually have a kind of basically an index fund that does that. But yeah, I own some Bitcoin and ETH and that's kind of, that's most of what in that fund anyway. So that's kind of what I have. So yeah, if you're, if you're, I would say spend some time learning about it and stuff, but yeah, I'm not, don't look at it as a like, oh, I'm going to get super rich by owning this. Think of it as like, hey, if it goes to a hundred thousand, if Bitcoin goes to a hundred thousand, you don't want to be the person not owning any of it. And obviously if it went to zero, that would be terrible. I don't think that's going to happen, but if it were to drop a lot in price, you wouldn't lose that much in the grand scheme of things, right? So that's why I say keep the exposure small, but it's one of those things where you could make some decent money on it so far. Diversification has been a like a theme of this conversation, right? And that you really want to make sure you're well diversified across different asset classes as you continue to build wealth. So the last question I have for you is this, like you've your wealth of knowledge when it comes to to investing when it comes to like saving for retirement and just all around like numbers and data. And, you, and I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons along the way when it comes to this. So like what's been the one lesson other than just keep buying that has had the biggest impact on your like financial literacy and your success with what you're doing today? I think the, I guess this is a lesson that kind of, it's like, where do you focus your time? I think that's the most important thing I've learned along the way. And this is obviously, it is related to finance in ways, like where you're focusing your financial time. As I said, are you, when you're younger, you should be focused on your saving, your career. And as you get older, you, you really need to optimize your investments. Think about taxes, those types of things. When you're 22, no offense, your tax situation is probably not that complex. It's probably not going to matter that much about tax efficiency. When you're 65 and you have a lot of you know money invested and all that, the taxes are going to matter, right? So for me, it's just really, where are you focusing your time? What type of things are you doing that's going to you know move the needle in your life and so regardless of what that is that could be whether that's in your financial life or otherwise it's just like where is your focus going that's really a lot of stuff because when you come when you think about compounding like the more time and energy you put into something generally you should see better results you should see some sort of improvements up to a point right i'm not saying everyone can improve forever but in theory you should be getting better at something or progressing in some way so that's why i would say like hey where are you focusing your time and kind of think about that and and why that's so important remember we only have so much time of all the things we have like you know we only have so many, you know, days in the week, so many, you know, hours in the day, etc. So many years on this planet. So just, you know, try and use your time to your best of your ability. Of course, don't guilt yourself about it. Go out, have fun, leisure. You need that. I think people need to have breaks and things like that. But at the same time, like your time's important. So value it. You can always make more money, but you can't always uh, get your time back. So I love how you uh, pointed that out. So Nick, this has been amazing. And I think people are going to want to connect with you. They're going to want to buy your book. They're going to probably want to read your blog and connect with you on Twitter. So where's the best place for them to do that? So on Twitter, yeah, I try to answer all my DMs. My DMs are open on Twitter. It's at dollars and data. It's all lowercase dollars and data. Or you can just look me up at Nick Majuli. You'll find me. But yeah, just send me a DM if you have any questions or anything, questions about the book, whatever. I'll be happy to answer. I try to answer every single DM I get. So yeah, I'd be happy to talk to people. And yeah, you can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. Just keep buying. And there's probably going to be links in the show notes or whatever. So yeah, I'll be sure to include the links to all that in the show notes. And for those listening, we once again welcome your feedback and invite you to share a takeaway. Maybe it, was something, maybe it was something that Nick said about the importance of compounding interest. Maybe it was something that he said uh, when he gave his thoughts on what's going on right now with the economy. 
Maybe it was something that he said about just not buying individual stocks. Whatever he said that resonated with you, make sure to share it, tag him and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. We once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time.